0: not much all of America can agree on, but maybe we can all agree that 2020 has been a really bad year so far, and it doesn't look to get much better with the election and all of its divisiveness. As a moderate Democrat sitting here in mid-October, things have been looking better and better to me with former Vice President Biden surging in the polls and the very real possibility of the Democrats retaking the Senate. But then, on the bad side, Trump and McConnell will almost certainly run Amy Coney Barrett through as Supreme Court Justice, which will tilt the Supreme Court firmly conservative for the foreseeable future. The only sitting justice in his 80s is Breyer, who's 82. Only Thomas and Alito, at 72 and respectively, are in their 70s. The remainder are in their 50s and 60s, with Barrett only 48. Only three of the eight sitting justices were appointed by Democrats. So we may be in for a very long couple of decades of right-leaning jurisprudence. But I'm not writing this as a discussion of the political tilt of the Supreme Court. This is a recital of how, even though it looks like Joe will win, the last six weeks before the election turned pretty crappy for me. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, the Gold Star Mission 500-mile bicycle ride, to raise funds for scholarships in honor of service members lost in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, changed from a four-day ride with nearly 40 cyclists in Peloton to a month-long individual effort to ride 500 miles. By September 22nd, my 71st birthday, I'd ridden 350 miles. With eight days to finish the 500 miles, I only needed to average about 20 miles a day to hit the goal. But I wanted to get a couple of bigger mile days in just in case something interrupted my riding. Mike Hungerford, my Edwardsville, Illinois, riding friend, plotted out a 75-mile ride from O'Fallon, Illinois, to Staunton, and back on the Madison County Rail to Trail Pass. The ride met two goals. One, for me to ride at least my age, at least once during the year, and two, for me to pile up some miles in reserve. Wednesday, September 23rd, we met at the Bike Surgeon, a bicycle shop in O'Fallon, at 8 a.m. to set off on our ride. My Trek-Demona carbon fiber road bike performed beautifully as we spun north on the clear, cool September morning. The trees not yet turning, but the farmers in the fields picking corn. With a long-sleeved t-shirt on under my Gold Star Mission 500 bicycling jersey, I quickly warmed up as the miles flew past. Two bottles of water snugged into the water bottle holders and a couple of English muffins slathered in almond butter and honey wrapped in aluminum foil tucked into the jersey pockets. Writing against my back provided assurance that I'd be fed and watered until our planned lunch break in Edwardsville. The wind cooperated, providing just enough breeze that we stayed comfortably cool despite our 15 mile an hour average pace. Tucked into the black zippered crossbar bag, on top of the spare inner tube and the tire levers for changing flat tires, wrote a $20 bill to cover lunch, my retired military ID card, and on top, under the clear plastic lid, sat the ubiquitous device we all carry today, my mobile phone. On one of our infrequent stops, I, as we're all wont to do, check my email. Little of interest, except an email from former members of Congress. That's the Alumni Association for Recovering Politicians who've served in the U.S. Congress. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died on September 18th, the Friday before. The email stated that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi set aside from 1030 to noon on Friday, September 25th for former members to pay their respects to the justice in the Capitol building's statuary Hall. This would be an historic occasion, as Justice Ginsburg is the first woman and the first person of Jewish faith to ever line state in the Capitol. I realized the event would occur in less than 48 hours, but thought it so significant that I immediately forwarded it to wife Annette, knowing that as the first woman elected a circuit judge in the five counties of Southern Illinois' 20th Judicial Circuit, and a great admirer of Justice Ginsburg, she would be thrilled at the invitation even though the timing made it impossible for us to go. Silly me. 20 minutes later, I get a call. I'm on the computer. We can't get a flight. There's only one nonstop, and it doesn't get there in time. We could drive. Now, I've driven the near thousand miles from Belleville, Illinois, to Washington, D.C. It's a 16-hour drive at best. We're not packed. We have no hotel reservations. We're in the midst of a pandemic. We haven't been to a restaurant or more than 50 miles from home since the pandemic started six months ago. This is historic. We have just celebrated the 100th anniversary of the adoption of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, granting the right to vote to women. Annette had single-handedly organized the ceremony and served as master of ceremonies at the St. Clair County Courthouse, recognizing the centennial. And, of course, I'd heard more than once the story of how Annette met justice then-attorney, Ginsburg, in the summer of 1973, when Annette, between graduating from Bradley University and starting law school, worked a summer job as a receptionist secretary at the ACLU National Headquarters in Washington, D.C. And Justice Ginsburg was an ACLU attorney during the Watergate crisis. So I wasn't surprised at her reaction. Three hours by bicycle from my car, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I rapidly calculated travel times and necessary logistics. I'll be home by 5, grab a shower. We can pack tonight and leave by 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. I'll make hotel reservations at the Willard Intercontinental by the White House when I get home. We can do this, I said. Of course we can do it. The judge may be five foot three and a 100 pounds soaking wet, but she is indomitable. Who was I to get in the way of her participation in history? Back on the bike, pedal like hell. Home before 5, shower, call the Willard, room for two nights secured, start packing. Now it's easy for me to pack. After 35 years in the military and a two-year hitch commuting to Washington, D.C. for a term in Congress, I've got it down to a science. Hmm, let's see. I'll need a navy blue suit, red, white, and blue tie, black belt, black shoes, black socks, change of underwear, white shirt, shave kit, done. I'm ready to go. Oh yeah, black umbrella just in case. Ah, but then there's the agony of Annette's selection process. Now, this is not sexist, or if it is, it's the truth. Women pack differently than men. Which outfit do I wear? Which jewelry? Which earrings go with the necklace? Should I wear the gold necklace or black? Then comes the issue of shoes. Oh, my God. We'll probably walk from the intercon to the Capitol. A good 15 or 20-minute walk. The shoes must match the outfit. They must be comfortable enough to walk in, yet stylish enough to stand up to the public scrutiny in our nation's capital. Then, check the weather. Oh my God, it's supposed to rain. More agonized decision-making. Suffice it to say, by 9 p.m., bags are packed, in the car, and ready to depart early. In 35 years of marriage, in spite of my military training, that, if you're on time, you're late... We seldom leave on time. We walked out the door at 7 a.m. Now, of course, we had to stop and fill a fuel tank, as I'd neglected to fill it the night before in my rush to pack. Another violation of my military training. Always fill up the fuel tank at the conclusion of a mission. The bad part about driving from Southern Illinois to Washington, D.C. in one day is that by the time you get to West Virginia, you're tired. Your reflexes aren't quite as sharp. The interstate winds through the mountains. It's narrow, truck filled, and hazardous. And you know you still have hours to go to reach the comfort of the hotel. Safely through the mountains of West Virginia and in the outskirts of D.C., just a few more miles to the hotel, the modest traffic on the eight lanes of interstate grinds to a halt. Road construction. The interstate is completely blocked as crews work through the nighttime hours to avoid slowing daytime traffic. 45 minutes later, we pull past the heavy equipment. 1 a.m., we pull up to a deserted valet stand in front of the Intercontinental, a stone's throw from the White House. Exhausted, but arrived. At 71 years of age, I've just done a road trip that would have taxed me as a college student. And in a few hours, we must get up, Dress and get to the Capitol to honor a towering figure of American jurisprudence and an icon to women everywhere. The next morning, as the rain held off, we strolled down Pennsylvania Avenue eastward to the Capitol. As we walked past Trump International Hotel, FBI headquarters, our apartment when I served in Congress, we were stunned by the vacant sidewalks, the litter swirling in the breeze, and the plywood sheathed windows. This is not the D.C. we knew a few short years ago. Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House to the Capitol in work week mid morning September is supposed to be packed with pedestrians. A few tourists in shorts and t shirts snapping pictures, and lots of dark suits of lobbyists, businessmen, and senior staffers. The streets filled with cabs, Uber drivers, and tourist buses. The streets cleanly swept in the pre dawn hours. Mm-hmm. That's not the familiar sight we thought we'd return to see. This is our first time back to the city since I'd left in January 2015. And it's a barren, desolate, almost post-apocalyptic city. As we approached the Capitol, we noticed the temporary fencing surrounding it. We took the sidewalk to the south, passing between the Capitol and the Rayburn building, familiar to us as the site of my seventh-floor office. The Capitol Police, spotting the congressional pin on my suit lapel, identifying me as a congressman or former congressman, waved us past the yellow fence line. We were stunned at the mere handful of onlookers. Ordinarily, those sidewalks are jammed with tourists, staffers, and hometown business folk present in D.C. to meet with their local congressman. While serving, I'd frequently walked up that sidewalk to meet constituents on the steps of the Capitol so that the official congressional photographers could take a quick photo of me shaking hands with folks from back home with the Capitol Dome gleaming in the background. Not today. No photographer, no constituents, no staffers scurrying along, self-importantly texting while walking. No tourists smelling about. Once under the portico, through the heavy brass and wood doors, we went. Waved through the magnetometer, courtesy once again of wearing that identifying lapel pin. The security guards told us to head up to the Rayburn room outside the Minority Leader's Office, where the assembled congressmen and women were gathering. Once there, the sergeant-at-arms, in response to my inquiry, told us that Speaker Pelosi had directed that female members of Congress would process through first, followed by male members, followed by former members, protocol rules in D.C. As the current members filed past us, we waved or spoke to several who'd served with me. Others, who'd come to Congress after me, ignored us as we're no longer members of the club, in spite of the small courtesies wearing the pin still brings. A few minutes passed as Annette and I sat in the gilded room under the watchful eyes of the portrait of Sam Rayburn, former Speaker of the House, while I paced. I'd frequently stood in that cavernous room waiting for a press conference to begin as reporters jostled for prime position, yet today it was nearly empty with perhaps a half-dozen former members awaiting their turn to pass before the flag-draped coffin. The surgeon-at-arms beckons to us from the doorway. The half-dozen or so mourners follow him to the entrance to Statuary Hall. He stands aside as we proceed into the room, lined with statues of prominent Americans. Once again, we're confronted with a venue, which I've only seen filled with life, noise, and people, now nearly devoid of people. A uniform Supreme Court police officer at either end of the casket, a nearly invisible C-span video cameraman and an official photographer moving about are the only obvious occupants. My highly polished black shoes click on the marble floor as we pass at a respectful 20 feet from the casket. Annette and I pause as we face the casket with the House of Representative floral arrangement to its right. Just as I've done so many times before at service members and veterans' funerals, I come to attention. Slowly, painfully slowly, raise my right hand and salute. Annette, one pace to the rear and two paces to my right. I hold the salute for the prescribed time and slowly, painfully slowly, lower the salute. I don't notice the video camera filming my salute nor the photographer snapping photos moving from right to left, although Annette notices, and our neighbor back home in Belleville watches on her television set while scratching our yellow Labrador's head as she dog-sits her in our absence. Salute concluded, right face, and move to the foot of the casket as the next former member takes our place. Another few minutes and we're out the door, thanking the sergeant-at-arms for his courtesy. We're quiet as we slowly walk from the Capitol to the Statuary Garden Pavilion Cafe at 7th and Constitution for lunch. The cafe is a quiet spot in the normally bustling downtown area. Annette loved walking in the gardens, then having lunch away from the noise and pressure of the Capitol complex. Although we had a reservation at the hotel that evening, we decided to check out and drive part of the way home so we'd be home at a decent hour on Saturday. Five hours later, we're sitting overlooking the Monongahela River in Morgantown, West Virginia, having dinner at a nearly deserted Convention Marriott. Lovely fall evening as the kayakers ply the river just upstream from a lock and dam, while the walkers and bicyclists occupy the asphalt path on the river's bank. The following day, we're back in Belleville, nearly 2,000 miles in less than 56 hours. Exhausted from a road trip that would have taxed us as 20-somethings. Concerned about our possible exposure to a potentially deadly virus. Was it worth it? Was all that effort, was all that risk, not to mention expense, worth a few minutes to stand before the casket of an 87-year-old woman who died from cancer? Unequivocally, yes. I'm proud that we made the effort to honor a woman who stood for so much of what we believe in as Americans. I wouldn't have made that trip had it not been for Annette. Thank you, Annette, for inspiring me to, once again, be there when history is made. But, back to why 2020 is a really crappy year for me. Sunday, after returning, I'm back on my bicycle, putting in the miles to complete the Gold Star Mission 500. At mile marker 444, I crashed with a fellow bicyclist at 20 miles an hour. Bouncing 71-year-old bones off an asphalt path is not a good thing to do. With one surgery down and one to go, I've got a stainless steel plate and five screws holding my shoulder together. I won't get that 500 miles done this year. But the good news is, Annette says it's okay if I get a new bike. Music to a cyclist's sears Maybe 2020 will turn out okay after all.